Welcome to the Faith Lakeside Podcast. Each week you'll hear another great message that will help you know God and make Him known in your life. Join us each Sunday at 1045 a.m. and throughout the week in small groups to make the most of your learning experiences. Now, sit back, relax with a great cup of coffee and a notebook and enjoy this week's message. Thank you guys for being here this week and I know that you know, we've got lots of great loved ones out and about and doing camp and uh, doing vacations and stuff so it is summer so it's never a surprise on a summer Sunday when the front rows are nearly empty. Thanks Ed for loving me and Lois and Larry and you know you guys are nearly in the spit range so you need to be careful um, <clears throat> just if I really get into it right. Uh, do be in prayer for our students who went to camp this week, AJ, Anna, Colin, Ashton, and Evan, and the leaders, uh, Keith, Mandy, and Jay. You know, camp is one of those experiences that can be life-altering, either for good or bad. Um, no, I, I remember this very camp, actually, is the camp at which I made my profession of faith. And like I mentioned last week, it's the camp where Shelly met her boyfriend with the Harley. So I think every week I'm going to say it now. Uh, every time Ridgecrest comes up, I will be mentioning that my wife dated a number of guys who rode Harleys, um, and all of this before her 16th birthday. Um, oh, I hope your mom's not watching. So uh, anyway, <laughs> we, uh, a couple other quick announcements. If uh, you did not get a communion cup, uh, they're in the basket in the back, and we will need them before the end of the, the sermon. Uh, so there's also a basket up here. So I encourage you, if you need a communion cup, maybe um, if somebody wants to volunteer to take a basket around or something, they're really easy, real simple. Just grab enough for your aisle. Well, there's a basket right here. You can, you can help. Anybody who needs one, just kind of put your hand up, like no higher than your shoulder, or we might think you're like Pentecostal today. Right? <laughs> Clearly, I am in a stinkery kind of mood. So uh, this is going to be fun. Uh, no, it's, it's actually, it's a beautiful day. It's a, it's a great day to be uh, getting into God's Word. So if you've got your Bible, I want to encourage you to open them up to the Gospel of Mark. Today is our, uh, our like, third to last. No, second to last. Anyway, two more weeks. Next week will be the penultimate. I love that word, uh, penultimate. So that's the week, or, or the, the one before the last. Uh, so next week will be our penultimate week in the Gospel of Mark, and we'll look at the burial and resurrection. And then the Gospel of Mark will end at the uh, second half of chapter 16. We'll take a look at it and uh, see some uniqueness in it. Uh, but we are going to first have to make it through the crucifixion today. And uh, just want to encourage you to, to be tender. Uh, I will not be overly graphic. I will not be overly, uh, you know, emotionalism today. But I do want you to think about as we go through this, what Christ experienced. And so we want to remember that in this gospel, according to Mark, that his whole point is to get us to the place where we celebrate and recognize that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus is the King of the Jews, the Messiah, the Christ, who will give himself for the life of many. He'll be a ransom. And he is also the Son of God. And uh, last week we kind of ended with these last two verses in the first little part of Mark chapter 15 and Pilate asking the Jewish people, why should Jesus be crucified? And their answer to him was not, well, because of this and this and this, but rather just another um, 
emotional shout to crucify him. So Pilate released Jesus Barabbas, remember the two choice of two Jesuses, and then has Jesus of Nazareth scourged or whipped, which in and of itself can be a death sentence in this day and age. Uh, because it's not just a little, uh, anybody else like to go into the, the gas stations and the rest stops back in the 80s uh, and buy a bullwhip every time your parents would let you? I would, I mean, I bought bullwhips. I had like a whole bunch of bullwhips. And my brother and I would whip at each other and it'd just be this flaccid sort of eh movement. No, we're talking about instead a trained professional who would use the scourge and the, the metal and stone and bone embedded in its tips to rip flesh. And not just rip it like a nasty scratch, but rip it to where bones and organs and fatty tissue would be exposed. And so Jesus has already, at the end of verse 15, experienced more pain than many of us will ever even imagine in our life. And when we understand that all of these pains and all of this suffering is not just because, but it is all payment for your sins and mine, when we put it in that context, it should make it all the more visceral and real for us, more of a thing where we touch it and we understand and we are appalled at what Christ went through and yet so thankful that he took that on our behalf, that each and every bit of suffering he goes through in this last, in this last chapter of Mark, uh, or the next to last chapter of Mark, uh, that chronicles his crucifixion, all of it was so that he might pay the ransom for your soul and mine. So as we see this, this is where we're left, that Jesus is turned over to be crucified. So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open them up to Mark chapter 15. We're going to be starting, oh, excuse me, in verses 16 through 20. So we're just going to kind of read through this. There's not a lot unique or or, or amazing that goes on here other than to watch Jesus suffer some more. And so it's, it's, it's stuff that we need to grasp, we need to see and understand, but it, it's not, there's not a lot of, of, of deep doctrine here particularly. So Mark chapter 15 verses 16 through 20, Jesus is turned over for crucifixion. Who is he turned over to? Well, he's turned over to the Roman soldiers in Jerusalem who will now uh, follow through and execute him by means of crucifixion. And so it says, the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisted a crown of thorns. They put it on him, and they began to salute him, hail, king of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. So this, this interlude here where Jesus is being essentially prepared finally for crucifixion, remember he's already been scourged or flogged or whipped, uh, depending upon the translation you have. And so he is uh, likely already in, uh, in shock. He's, he's experienced a huge amount of blood loss already. He is on the verge of death. Uh, and yet still living. And uh, this battalion of soldiers, and, and the word that in the Greek here for battalion, it could mean up to 600 soldiers that were gathered together in this courtyard, mocking and beating Jesus. It could mean as few as just the soldiers 
who were on duty that day, which would still have been a substantial number, because remember, this is Passover, and the Roman authorities are on a high alert watching for Jewish rebellion. And so um, Jerusalem has about a hundred times more people than normal inside and, and outside of its gates, and so there would have been a substantial military presence on, part of the Rome, on the part of the Romans during this time. So regardless of exactly what battalion means, we know it's a lot of soldiers, up to 600 soldiers that gathered together in, in the palace, and they clothed him in a purple cloak. Uh, anybody familiar with the significance of purple? That's right. It was Prince's favorite color. Um, <laughs> I told you I'm in a mood today. Sorry. Uh, but no, purple in this day and age, it's a very expensive dye. It is the color of royalty. And, and so these, these soldiers, these Roman soldiers, they're putting a purple cloak on Jesus, not to acknowledge him as royalty, but instead to taunt him. To, to say, you think you're a king. And, and it was likely that this cloak was not a royal cloak, but it was a, a leader's cloak, a centurion's cloak, that would have been used to set a centurion apart as significant and a leader, but it was placed on Jesus' shoulders. And then they twisted together a crown of thorns. And a lot of times in our context, when we think of thorns, we think of like briars and brambles. We think of, you know, wanting a few blackberries and ending up with some bloody fingers, but these are not the thorns that we would expect to see, but rather kind of more along the lines of what's on the vine up there, but thorns that could be up to an inch and a half, two inches long, and a crown woven out of it and placed upon Jesus' head. And then it says that they, they beat him with a reed. And so we're likely driving that crown of thorns, this symbol of, of royalty that is now a, a symbol of mocking and shame down upon his head with that reed. They put him in a purple cloak, they twist together the crown of thorns, and they begin to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! Now, do you think this was legitimate or mocking, right? As we read it, it becomes very clear. This is a mocking proclamation. But what is amazing about God's Word, and what's amazing about how things unfold in the Christian faith, is that oftentimes what mankind in the flesh and in their sinfulness, what they mock and belittle is the greatest truth and, and, and power that you would imagine. Here, here they are mocking Jesus and yet making a proclamation that is true. He is the king of the Jews. And he's not just the king of the Jews. He is the king of all mankind, the Christ, the Messiah for all. When they had finished mocking him, they strip him of the purple cloak, put on his own clothes, and then they lead him out to be crucified. Now, understand that as Jesus is bleeding, and we don't know how long this takes, but remember, it, it's all taking place when he first encounters Pilate. It's probably around 6 a.m., and Jesus is crucified by 9 a.m., so there's this three-hour window where the trial in front of Pilate takes place, and then this preparation for crucifixion takes place, and then the walk to Golgotha that we're going to read about here in a moment, and then the actual crucifixion to where Jesus is hanging on the cross by 9 a.m. So this is not necessarily a long and drawn out thing, but over the course of just a few moments even, with a cloak over his bleeding and ripped apart back, it would be sticking to him. 
His body would be trying to fight this destruction. Remember, Jesus is fully man. He's just like you and I. This cloak is like a band-aid for his body. And as they rip it off after spending time mocking him, it rips off all the healing and all the comfort and all the fight that his body has left in it goes with that cloak. And he is once again laid bare and bleeding and ripped open as the ransom for your sins and mine. So, Scripture goes on to to tell us what happens next. Verses 21 through 32. And they were taking him out to be crucified, and they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him, Jesus, wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those... Excuse me, and those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross, that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. So as Jesus is walking off to his crucifixion, being led away to die on the cross, all of a sudden it becomes apparent that he is unable to carry his cross any longer. And it was Roman tradition that the person who was being executed by crucifixion would carry with them the crossbar of the cross, not the whole cross like we see in a lot of movies, um, which is okay, it's fine, it gives us the scope and understanding of what's going on, but instead what would usually happen is that the vertical element would remain planted firmly in the ground and the, the Romans would make the prisoner carry the crossbar to the cross, they would be nailed to the crossbar and then lifted up and attached to the vertical bar, or the vertical post, and then their feet would be nailed to the post. And, and so we see Jesus, he's carrying the crossbar of his cross. Remember, about 100 pounds. Now, some of you are like, oh, I can carry 100 pounds, no problem. Well, of course you can. I mean, most of us are pretty healthy, but 100 pounds. I mean, that's actually quite a bit of weight. Um, I used to do construction. You know, one bag of sacrete is anywhere from 40 to 80 pounds, It's like carrying a bag of concrete on your shoulders when you've just been beaten with a whip, beaten with a cane, you've got a crown of thorns in your head. You're just not really in a place for carrying great weights. And so it's no no wonder that Jesus is unable to, to be able to carry the crossbar all the way to the place of the skull to Golgotha. So they get a passerby, Simon of Cyrene. Uh, Cyrene, uh, many of the people there were darker complexion, so you might see Simon depicted as a a darker skinned um, person, and it's just cool how the gospel reaches everyone. He was coming in from the country. He was probably there from uh, 
from Cyrene, which had a, an outpost of Jews. They were probably there for Passover. He was maybe camped out outside and was coming into Jerusalem to participate in, in the things going on at the Passover. And instead, he gets grabbed and made to carry Jesus' cross. Now, Mark is the only one who mentions that Simon's boys, his children, were named Alexander and Rufus. Um, and, and you might wonder, well, why would Mark mention Alexander and Rufus? Because this is historical. It happened in time and space, and there were people there. And when Mark wrote his gospel about 20 years after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ, Alexander and Rufus were still alive. And if anyone wondered, is this story true, Mark is essentially telling them, what I want you to do is go check in with Alexander and Rufus. This is history, guys. And I know two men who were there and saw it with their own eyes because their dad is the one that carried Jesus' cross. Now, a couple other interesting things. In Romans chapter 16, verse 13, the Apostle Paul mentions Rufus. And we don't know if he's the same Rufus, but it's very possible because the Gospel of Mark was written to the Roman church to help encourage them in a time of persecution. And so it's very possible that Rufus was right there in Rome where the first recipients of this Gospel would have been, and they might have even known Rufus. Now, another interesting little bit, there's actually a bone box. It's called an ossuary. Uh, and what, what, why you would have a box of bones, it's not because of witchcraft or anything crazy like that, but in this first century era, you would not be buried and stay in that same tomb forever. You would be buried in a family tomb. They'd give you a couple years to kind of dry up and blow away, and then they would go back in and gather your bones and place your bones in a box. And that is your final resting place, is inside an ossuary, just your bones. And on the ossuaries, there would be marks. Uh, it would be written who this person was. Because, I mean, you don't want to get, like, you know, Uncle Bob confused with Aunt Matilda. You got to get, you know, you want to make sure you got the bones right. So there is an ossuary that's been found, and it, it uh, had on the side of it in an area where the Cyrenes were buried near Jerusalem, Alexander, son of Simon. So we've actually found bones. It isn't necessarily the same guy, but we found bone box with the bones of Alexander, son of Simon. An interesting coincidence, maybe, or maybe once again proof of the historicity, the truthfulness of God's word. So, Simon carries Jesus' crossbar up to the place where Jesus is to be crucified. The place where he is to be crucified is called uh, the place of the skull, Golgotha. And here's what happens when they arrive, is when they get there, it was tradition, it seems, for the Jewish women to offer to people who were being executed in that day and age, and even throughout Jewish history, to offer them a mix of wine and myrrh in order to make their execution easier on them. 
So what is wine and myrrh? It's not like some sort of cool spiced wine that all the hipsters were drinking in Jesus' day. It is instead a mixture of just a simple, cheap wine and myrrh, which is a painkiller. Enough myrrh, and it has the same effects as our modern-day morphine. And so wine and myrrh was offered to those who were being executed in order to, to make their suffering less and for them to be able to pass sooner. And here's what's interesting about Jesus. He doesn't take the wine and myrrh. Now we could go, why would he do that? I mean, wouldn't you do anything to make your suffering less? We have to understand that Jesus came to pay the price for your sins and mine. And if we remember that every bit of suffering, every, every moment of, of trauma and trouble is to him not a negative, but instead I'm doling out the payment so that you might be saved. This is the price. This is what it takes for you to be saved. This is the price. I'm so happy to pay this for you. Every bit of suffering, every bit of pain, every bit of trauma, this is not Jesus just you know, making it through so he can finish things on the cross, but every bit of it, this whole experience is him making the payments for your salvation, bit by bit, moment by moment. And so to, to, to take a painkiller is to eliminate the suffering, is to lessen the payment, is to deny what he's there for. And so he chooses to suffer fully throughout this experience. So here's what happens. They crucify him and they divide his garments among them. And that is talking now about the Roman soldiers. So they crucify Jesus. They divide his garments among them, which was their privilege. Kind of a weird like benefit, right? There's no health insurance, but when you crucify someone, you get to divide up their clothes. Wow. Now, the other Gospels tell us that Jesus had a beautiful one-piece knit undergarment or woven undergarment that had been made for him by his mother, and it was so beautiful, so perfect, so right, that it wasn't something they wanted to see destroyed, and so they cast lots for that. They wanted to, to, to be able to, to um, get that piece, and so they they, you know, roll on the dice to decide who would receive it. Now, what's interesting about this and so much of what happens in the crucifixion and in these last moments is that these are all things that are happening in fulfillment of prophecy even as Jesus is paying the price for us. Psalm twenty-two, eighteen says this, they divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. Now we're going to see all of Psalm 22. Jesus is going to identify himself with it later on in this experience but over and over again, we see components of Psalm 22 fulfilled in these last moments of Jesus' life. So they cast lots for his clothes, deciding what each should take. And then it tells us that it was the third hour, 9 a.m., when they crucified him. So Jesus is 
crucified by 9 a.m. after having gone through a, a beautiful time with his disciples the night before. Moments of prayer in the garden in the middle of the night all the way up till 3 a.m. His arrests and trials from about 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. And then from 6 to 9, his trial before Pilate and his scourging and his beating at the hands of the Romans. And then by 9 a.m., he is crucified. Now we're going to see that this moment of crucifixion, this act of being hung on the cross, this is not the end of his suffering. And this is not the end of him paying the price for your salvation and mine. But what we're going to see happen here in the next little bit is all going to happen between 9 a.m. and noon. So this is going to unfold over the next three hours. Jesus is hanging on the cross. And now these experiences that remain up until a certain point are all going to happen in the next three-hour block. Now just to to remind you of of, uh, crucifixion. Right, We've all heard the Easter sermons over and over again, the pain of crucifixion. To be placed on a cross, to be hung by your arms, nails likely driven through the wrists, not the palm of the hand like we see oftentimes in movies. If it was driven through the palm of the hand to hit those nerves, he would have been tied to the cross as well. And, and the whole deal of the cross is that when you hang by your arms like this, it makes it impossible to breathe. And so death usually occurs by both exhaustion and asphyxiation. And we say exhaustion because not only were those who were crucified nailed up by their hands, but their feet were also nailed to the vertical post. And so what would happen is that a crucified person would hang by their arms, and then find themselves on the verge of passing out from a lack of oxygen due to asphyxiation. And so they would gather all their strength and push up on their feet, on the nails that were driven through their feet, which would have been excruciating. It's just full of nerves and tenderness down there. You ever hit your little toe on the coffee table? Yeah, that kind of stuff. It's painful, it's excruciating, and so you'd push up and catch a breath or two or three until you couldn't handle the pain on your feet any longer and you'd hang by your arms, which was no better when it came to pain, but at least you could rest the rest of your body. But you'd slowly find yourself unable to breathe once again. And so it was a cycle of pushing up to catch a breath, hanging down to try and, and, and rest and, and, and just survive And so this is what Jesus is going through this whole time. It's not just hanging there and looking down on love, on everybody with love, but but it it is this experience of breathing and fighting through the pain and suffering in order to, to see what is left of his work unfold before us. So here's what chapter 15 verses 26 and 27 tells us. And the inscription on the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. So much like our cross over here, Jesus would have had a sign hung above his head explaining why he was crucified, explaining for what reason he deserved this execution. And Pilate was a little crafty. He said it was because he was the king of the Jews. He was really trying to shame the Jewish people, stick it to the Jewish leadership. 
because he didn't really believe that Jesus was a king in the way that they were accusing him, that Jesus had no designs for political leadership or overthrow of the Roman government, but Jesus was a king, and he did have a kingdom, and he was the Messiah of the Jews, but it didn't mean what Pilate meant. It didn't mean what the religious leaders meant, but it did mean something special, that he was here to redeem us. He was here to save us. So with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And many of us are very familiar with the robbers. We, we hear stories about them. We see them in other gospels. And we'll talk about that a little bit more. In Isaiah 53, 12, it tells us that this is going to happen. It says, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, and was numbered with the transgressors, or the rebels. Yet he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the rebels. In other words, Jesus was hung between, we call them two thieves, two robbers. The word there can actually be rebels as well. And so it could be that these were men who were involved in the insurrection that Barabbas had been part of, and they were being crucified for their role in it. And everybody who passed by him... They derided him, they made fun of him, they shamed him, they were wagging their heads and saying, aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. This very action, this very thing that's going on here is in fulfillment of other parts of scripture prophecy in the Old Testament. Psalm 22, 7 says this, all who see me mock me, they make mouths at me, they, they make faces at me. They wag their heads, they shake their heads, they say mean things, and they shame me. Psalm 109.25 says this, I am an object of scorn to my accusers. When they see me, they wag their heads. Both of these psalms, 22 and 109, are viewed as messianic prophecy psalms. Psalms that David wrote that he was feeling these things, but they clearly don't apply to him directly. And so as we see them in the future, in the life of Christ, it's very clear that David was writing prophetic songs about his descendant who was to come, Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, the Son of David. So he's being condemned by the people, and he's also being condemned and mocked by the chief priests and the scribes, and they're saying to each other, he saved others, but he can't save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from, uh, now from the cross that we may see and believe. Do you think that their offer to believe on Jesus, if he could just get down off the cross, was a genuine offer? I don't. You know why? Remember the things that they've already seen him do. They've been witnessed to personally, or it's been reported to them, that he's done things like feed 5,000 and feed 4,000. And he brought a little girl back to life. And he, he brought Lazarus back to life. He made a blind man see. A lame man walk. He has cast out demons from people who were chained up out by the graves. Because they were so desperately consumed with the influence of those demons. They have had every opportunity 
to see the good works of Jesus and believe. And so there's no reason to think that if he were to climb down off the cross that they would all of a sudden believe. Now, quick question, could Jesus have come down off the cross in that moment? Absolutely. If at any moment he could call legions of angels to his side to do as he wished, don't you think he could have just come down off that cross? That's an interesting thing, right? To think, what is it that held Jesus on the cross? Now, I don't want to get too Christian, you know, greeting cardy, but literally it wasn't the nails that kept Jesus on the cross. It was his, yeah, his obedience. It was his faithfulness to the, the project that was given to him. It was his desire to save you from your sin that kept him on the cross. Now, Mark tells us that those who were crucified with him on either side also reviled him. Now, you might go, wait a minute, I've heard a different story. And most of us, we understand, we remember that there's also another gospel that tells us, not another gospel out there like a fake one, but a real one that tells us that something a little different happened. So Luke chapter 23 is actually the, the other gospel that tells us what happened differently with these two thieves on the cross. Now, I want you to keep in mind the time frame for all of this. Jesus is crucified at what hour? 9 a.m. And he is mocked, he is scorned, he is rejected for three hours we're going to see. And Mark tells us that the thieves who were crucified with him, the, the rebels, the insurgents who were crucified with him, that they too mocked him, excuse me, that they too reviled him. But then we, we look here and we see in the Gospel of Luke a little bit of a different story. So Luke chapter 23, verses 39 through 43. So Luke tells us one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour. So, all of a sudden, we see this moment where one of the thieves is watching everything unfold. He had been participating in the shaming and the reviling of Jesus and the rejection of Jesus, but now he's watched this man who is crucified alongside them, who has forgone the painkiller. He is receiving all of this shame and all of this scorn and all of this condemnation, and yet we see in other Gospels that he says things like, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. He laments for the people who have crucified him while he hangs on the cross. And so one of the thieves in this three hours time span comes to his senses and sees that there's something unique about Jesus. So while both likely reviled him in the very beginning moments, 
over the course of this three hours, we see one of them, his heart is turned, and he begins to see Jesus as something more. And so when Mark says both of them reviled him, and Luke says one of them trusted in him as Savior, understand this is a three-hour time frame, and a lot unfolds over the course of three hours, including one man's salvation. Mark chose not to record it because it wasn't important to the unfolding of his story. Luke does because Luke's the historian and he wants to get all the facts crammed in there that he can. So there's no contradiction in Scripture here. It is rather, remember, this is over the course of three hours and one evangelist, one gospel writer chooses to record all the details And one leaves some of the details out because it doesn't fit in with his goals. And we have to remember that these Gospels are inspired by God, but written by people. And so as the authors sat down, they had in mind a goal. What's Mark's goal? He wants us to remember, to learn, to be reinforced in the fact that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And he wants us to understand that Jesus has suffered for us and even now suffers alongside of us as the readers in Rome are undergoing persecution. And so he is focused intently on Jesus' suffering while Luke takes the time to show the criminal's redemption. So the story continues to unfold. It's now noontime and Mark tells us that something unique happens at noon. In fact, all of the gospel writers tell us what happens at noon So if you'll look with me in chapter 15, verses 33 through 39. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. So all of the gospel writers tell us that from about noon until 3 p.m., everything falls dark. So dark, in fact, that one Jewish historian who was recording this, Josephus, he tells us that people started thinking it was nighttime and started preparing for the evening very quickly as it got dark, so dark, from noon to 3 p.m., the day of Jesus' crucifixion. And then at the ninth hour, actually, let me back up a little bit. Forgot I included this. This darkness is a fulfillment of Amos chapter 8, verses 9 and 10. Amos, Amos, (laughs) sorry, some of you heard quick, as quick as I said it. Amos is (laughs) just a little little book, a minor prophet in the Old Testament, but in Amos chapter 8, Verses 9 and 10. 
it's written, And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feast into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. We see, we can see all of this. We can see elements of Jesus and his crucifixion and the mourning and the desperation that should be in the minds of the people as they kill the son of God, the king of creation. And this darkness from the sixth hour to the ninth hour is what confirms it. And then in verse 15, verse 34, it tells us that in the ninth hour, there at 3 p.m., Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Nowhere in any of the Gospels do we see Jesus crying out, this hurts, make it stop. Why am I suffering like this? But what we do see here as he comes to the very end of this experience is that he has felt the wrath of God for the sin that he's taking upon himself. This is not the cross. That's not the sum total of Jesus' experience for us. But as he took our sin, Scripture says, and made it possible for us to receive his righteousness, Jesus felt the full wrath of the Father for all of our sins, for yours and mine. Can, can you imagine? I know that my list is pretty long. I know if, if I had to suffer for even just a handful of the things that I have done in rebellion against God, that I deserve an eternal damnation. My rebellion against God is that bad. I think yours might be too. And Jesus paid the price for all of it. And we know that he, he suffered and he felt separation. Can, can you imagine your darkest night of experience? I mean, I, I don't know if anybody else has had one where, <clears throat> you know, you, you're, you're laying there in bed and just everything feels like it has no meaning. And when you pray, it feels like the ceiling is an, an impermeable barrier. That there's no way God can get to you or you can get to God. That you're just crying out into darkness for your words to be absorbed by the wood and the plaster. And I want you to take, if even if you've had one night like that, and I want you to take that and multiply it, that feeling of separation from God, of blackness and darkness and bleakness and hopelessness, and multiply it infinitely by every sin that's ever been committed and every person who's ever lived. And this is what Jesus experienced on the cross. It should be mind-numbing to us to imagine that. Just 
It's not just the pain of crucifixion. It's not just the the suffering of being flogged. It's not just the embarrassment of being shamed. It is the darkest night of your soul multiplied infinitely and experienced in these moments on the cross. This is what Jesus did for us. This is what Jesus felt and experienced. This is in fulfillment of Psalm 22, verse 1, where the psalmist David writes, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. You see, Jesus was fulfilling Psalm 22.1, but he's also identifying by himself according to Psalm 22. Because if we read in Psalm 22, it begins with a lament. It walks through suffering, but it ends in victory. And this is what Jesus has done for us. He, he laments, he suffers, he struggles, he experiences the darkest night on our behalf, and yet it will end in victory, both for himself and for all who will believe on him as Lord and Savior. And so we watch Jesus die here in just a moment. Sorry, skipped a few verses. Some of the bystanders hearing what Jesus says, they say, he's calling out to Elijah. And uh, so there was a, a common view in this day and age that if someone was being wrongly persecuted or suffering, that the prophet Elijah, who never died according to Scripture, he was taken up to heaven by, by God in a chariot, a fiery chariot, which just sounds cool, right? And that's where we get, you know, the, the spiritual swing low sweet chariot, right? Coming forward, carry me home. Uh, it's this picture of Elijah being taken to heaven. And there was a view, this living prophet Elijah, if someone was being persecuted and suffering wrongly, that Elijah, when they called on him, would come swooping out of heaven and save the righteous person from the undeserved suffering. So they say he's calling Elijah, so they, they go and they, they offer him some sour wine, and you might go, sour wine? Why? It was like Gatorade for them. That's what the, some of the commentators I read this week describe it as. It's first century Gatorade. Vinegar and water, essentially, is, is, is like a refreshing drink in this era. Of course, they're probably going to look at us and go, Kool-Aid someday, right? So sour wine, they put it on a reed, which means that Jesus' cross was high. This was meant to be an example for all mankind. And it's also a fulfillment of prophecy. Jesus prophesied about himself that the Son of Man would be lifted up, would be raised up high. And he pointed back to Moses and the snakes that the children of Israel experienced during the Exodus. And they had a problem with poisonous snakes, and people were getting bitten by the snakes and then dying. And God uh, gets complained to by the Jewish people and by Moses, and God says, I want you to make a bronze snake, and I want you to put it on a pole, and I want you to raise it up above the camp and that when someone is bitten by a poisonous snake, the only thing they have to do is look up at the bronze snake and they'll be fine. And we kind of go, God, you know, some antivenom would have been nicer. Or just get rid of the snakes. You know, St. Patrick did it. Why can't you? Instead, it's a picture set up to when you are bitten by the serpent, Satan, and infected with sin, and it will bring death. If you will look up 
you will be saved. Jesus was raised up so that everyone who has been bitten by Satan, infected with sin, when we look up, we will be saved. And so they give him a drink, and then they say, all right, let's wait and see if Elijah comes to take him down. Jesus had claimed to be innocent. Pilate had declared him innocent. He was technically wrongly persecuted. And this is kind of a a similar statement to what the religious leaders had said earlier. If you'll only come down, we'll believe. And now others are saying, well, if Elijah comes and gets him, then we'll know what he was saying about himself was true. You see, Jesus wasn't here to come and be a political leader or to to have big rallies and rah-rah and hooray, but instead Jesus was here to pay the price for your sins and mine. And then Jesus utters a loud cry and breathes his last. Other gospels tell us that the the last thing Jesus said is, it is finished. I've, I've done the work you sent me for, Father. The price for everyone who will believe has been paid. And then, Mark tells us, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. That, that there were at least two curtains on the temple in Jesus' day. There was, had always been an, one on the inner, between the holy place and the holy of holies, where the Ark of the Covenant would have rested. And it was a very thick and, and impossible to see through curtain. And then Herod had actually had another curtain put on the front door of the temple, But when we look at this and we hear the stories and compile everything together, it's believed that it was the the curtain inside the temple between the holy place and the holiest of holies. The holy of holies was was the the only time anybody could go in there was once a year to offer the sacrifice for the atonement of all of Israel. And this ripping of the curtain was essentially God saying, from top to bottom I have declared that everyone has access to me now. In the death of Jesus Christ, in the payment he made upon the cross, everyone who would come in faith now has access complete and full to the Father. And then we see this. When the centurion, who had been there overseeing his execution, who stood facing him, saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. It was... As Jesus dies, as this soldier watches Jesus give his life in one last breath, that the soldier realizes there was something special about Jesus. Now, when we read the the original Greek here, when he says this, truly this man was the son of God, it could also be translated, truly this man was a son of God. But you know what? When it says... When we translate it this way, truly this man was the Son of God. It's a faithful translation. It's a reasonable translation. And whether or not the centurion thought Jesus was the Messiah, it doesn't matter. He was making a truthful statement. Whether he intended it to be a conclusion to the Gospel of Mark or not, he really provides for us the climax. This man, who was crucified King of the Jews, was the Son of God. Jesus is the Christ, the King of the Jews, the Messiah, the Son of God. And we see it all fulfilled here in these last moments of Jesus' life. So, what's so important about all this? It's to remember the truth 
Jesus knew what he was coming for. He knew what this was all about. When we see the cross, when we think about crucifixion, when we think about flogging and shaming and crowns of thorns, it's not just some gruesome physical experience, but it was rather every moment of that, Jesus was serving you and I and giving his life freely as the payment for your sins and mine. Freely giving himself to serve you. Freely giving himself to serve me. So that everyone who believes on him as Lord and Savior will be saved and have their sins forgiven and might come into the presence of God without shame or guilt clothed in his very righteousness. Jesus is truly the Christ, the Son of God. There's no other way to see this. He's not just a good man. He's not just somebody who, you know, was a great political leader who made some mistakes and got crucified for it. He was the Christ, the Son of God, who came knowing the whole time he walked this earth what his job was, what his task was, and what the goal was. His job was to come to live a perfect, sinless life, to die on the cross and suffer everything leading up to it as the payment for your sins and mine. Rise again on the third day to prove that it's all true and then declare whoever believes that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that he rose from the dead will be saved for eternity. Today we have the privilege, try and do it about once a month, to once again partake of communion together. I hope everybody got uh, one. If you didn't, there's still some in the basket in the back back there. And, of course, I hope you know that the first step in being able to appreciate and partake of communion is to have trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Otherwise, this is just an empty practice. But when you understand that you were created by a loving God who gave standards and that you rebelled against those standards, you have... earned by your rebellion, by your disobedience, his wrath and death. But God loved you so much that he sent his son Jesus, who lived a perfect and sinless life and died on the cross to absorb the wrath of God on your behalf, to to cry out on your behalf, God, why have you forsaken me? And then he rose again on the third day, and everyone who believes in their heart that God has raised him from the dead, and everyone who confesses with their mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. And when you've done that, you have the privilege of partaking of the Lord's table with other believers. And remember, this bread and this juice, they're not just bread and juice. They're beautiful, deep symbols of what God has done for you in Christ Jesus. So if you'll open the bread with me, Jesus, on the same night he was betrayed, he took and he broke bread and blessed it and he he told his disciples, this is my body given for you. And in this body, we need to understand Jesus paid all the price for our sin and then earned for us righteousness, holiness, that we might be clothed in his righteousness and able to enter into the very presence of a perfect and holy God with no shame, with no fear, in order to find the grace that we need in times of trouble. And so, 
Jesus gave his body for us, and this bread reminds us of that. He told his disciples, every time you eat it, I want you to do it in remembrance of me. And so today, after praying together, we will take of the Lord's body as symbolized in this bread, remembering what Jesus has done for us on the cross. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for this bread and that it reminds us of what your son Jesus did for us. Lord Jesus, thank you for taking the wrath of the Father in your body. Thank you for earning for all of us who would believe righteousness that we might approach the throne of grace whenever we need it. Thank you for giving your body for us. We ask that you would bless this bread, that as we partake of it, we might truly take you in, understanding it's just bread, but that in partaking of it, we recognize our need for you day by day, moment by moment, breath by breath. And so we thank you for your body given for us. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Do this in remembrance of him. Same evening, Jesus took the cup. He told his disciples after blessing it, this cup is the new covenant established in my blood. And the blood of Jesus, Scripture tells us, does a couple of things. It cleanses us from the guilt of sin. Jesus took the punishment and then his blood washes away the guilt. There's no longer any record of our wrongdoing in the blood of Christ. And now... Also, there's a new promise, a new contract made with us that whoever would believe might be saved when they believe on Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And so today, as we partake of the, the cup, the juice, I want you to remember the price that was paid for you. I want you to remember that God loved you so much that he sealed the contract of belief and salvation with the very blood of his Son, and that you can stand before him guiltless in every moment when you confess your sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us of everything we confess and then cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so, open the juice if you will. And Jesus told his disciples every time they drink it, they should do it in remembrance of him. Let's remember Christ as we partake of it. The last little bit of this crucifixion story, the last little bit of this crucifixion history tells us in verses 40 through 41, there were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women, women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And so what we see in these last moments as Jesus is crucified, interesting and kind of telling of how the church is going to go from time to time. The men ran away in fear, and the women were there to watch. And they were there with Christ as he died. Now, we won't draw any big conclusions. We won't make any 
huge statements, but we will say that in Christ, men and women find an, an equality in salvation. We find a, a privilege of walking before Christ as equals that had never been seen before. And we really don't see it in any genuine religion since. And so we celebrate. And it's important to see these women because they are going to actually lead the way in the rest of this history, in the rest of this experience next week. So come hear the rest of the story. Come live the rest of this experience with us next week. As you walk through life this week, remember what Jesus has paid for you. Remember that everything that he experienced in these last few hours of his life was to purchase you from sin, was to give you salvation. Do not take that lightly, but also rejoice in what was paid for you. You are valuable, you are loved, and when you've trusted on Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are saved beyond a shadow of a doubt. Would you join me in a word of prayer as the worship team comes and gets ready to close us out with a final song? Father God, we thank you for just the love that you have for us. Your scripture tells us you loved us so much that you sent your only son who died for us. More than that, he lived for us as well, a perfect and sinless life. We thank you that you have given us in your Bible your good news, your gospels, this hard truth of the price that was paid for us. May we not treat it flippantly. Help us not just to wear golden crosses and say great things about Jesus, but to actually understand the meaning of the cross. That on it and all of the things leading up to it, it was suffering that paid for us. It was bleakness and darkness that Christ experienced on our behalf. It was separation from you that he paid the price of so that we didn't have to. May we not take that lightly. But also, may we not be just somber about it, but may we also be celebratory about it. Because he loved each and every one of us so much that he was willing to pay a price beyond our comprehension. And so today we are so thankful, Jesus. We are thankful, Father, that you sent him. We are thankful, Jesus, that you walked in obedience to the plans of the Father and fulfilled our salvation. And we thank you that as we look next week, we'll get to see and celebrate once again that you rose from the dead to prove it's all true. So today, as the taste of the juice and the bread still linger in our mouth, as a cross is before us, May we celebrate your sacrifice and may we somberly see ourselves as individuals of value because you've chosen to pay so much for us. Lord Jesus, we believe in you. Redeem us and make us more like you. In your name we pray.